This episode of the Real-Time History Podcast is sponsored by Nebula. Subscribe to Nebula to listen to this podcast and watch all our Real-Time History videos earlier and ad-free. You also get access to exclusive historical deep-dive documentaries like our World War II series 16 Days in Berlin and Rhineland 45 on the dramatic and decisive final stage of the Second World War. Sign up for Nebula at nebula.tv slash Real-Time History Podcast for just $30 for an entire year and support this show. Hello everyone, this is Flo from the Great War Channel podcast, uh, recording here in Berlin on the 6th of June, which um, is a pretty important date to the US Marines, uh, as I just read. And fittingly for that, I have a guest with me uh, who is sitting across the Atlantic in New York City. His name is Kevin Fitzpatrick, and he's going to tell you a bit about himself now. Hi, pa- Hi Kevin, how's it going? Hey, Flo. Thanks for having me on today. Um, yeah, I'm in New York. Uh, I'm the author of World War One: New York, um, a guide to the, the city's enduring ties to the Great War. It's the first guidebook to New York City and World War One, which we call it here. And um, yes, I'm uh, also a Marine. Um, I joined the Marines in 1984, discharged in 1989, um, which is where the first time I heard about World War One was in boot camp. Really? Not before in school or anything? No, no, I don't, I, I honestly, I cannot remember them teaching the Great War to me in high school. And when I got to San Diego to recruit training, um, the Marines hand you a book, which they call Your Knowledge. And that's where, you know, the Marines really drill into your head um, the history of the Marine Corps. And um, so that's the first time I heard about Bella Wood and Dan Daly and the Teufelhunden um, was in this book. And so, you know, the, the Marines really, really teach you the history of the Marine Corps. And um, <clears throat> so I learned all this and then I didn't really think about it for a long time. Uh, then around mm, 10 years or so ago, I started researching uh, more New York City history and learning about um, – Cypress Hills National Cemetery, which is in Brooklyn, um, which is where Dan Daly is buried with a lot of other people from World War One, And that became uh, part of another book I worked on, which was about Governor's Island. And uh, then as we got closer to the centennial, um, a couple of years ago is when I started doing the much more uh, a deep dive into the history of World War One in New York City. Um, which led to this book that came out last year for the centennial. Okay, that's really cool. I mean, uh, local history or even super local history is a pretty hot topic in you know universities. I talk to a lot of historians, you know, who say, um, you know, the approach towards you know basically maybe amateur historians who do super local research, maybe about a house or a block or their street is extremely valuable in, you know, re-evaluating certain historic events and also giving, you know, a much more relatable relatable perspective onto history. So for you as a New Yorker, was it a natural thing to just basically look around you and first see what's there and then stick with it? Or how did you, you know, combine the two things? Sure. Um, well, a couple things inspired me. One was... Uh, 
um, around 10 years ago, I went to Normandy for the first time. And before I went to Normandy, I bought all these battlefield maps and, you know, guides to, you know, the invasion and the landing and everything like that about Normandy. Then in New York, um, I'm always buying books about New York City and New York City history. Um, I'm also a guide. I take people around and talk about the history of New York City. And so there was a book with um, the terrible title of The Civil War Lover's Guide to New York City. I know it sounds terrible, right? Wow. <laughs> Who picked that? I know it's so bad, but um, I like the concept of of a, a a book about locations like that. And I said to myself, "Well, there's a lot more World War One locations to New York than there are Civil War." And um, I decided to really map out in the five boroughs of New York City things related to the war, places that. Um, the war took place had a military purpose, whether it was training, recruiting, uh, fundraising. And so I started making a list, a list of all the places from 1914 to uh, 1922 that might have a relation to the Great War. And I, I started coming up with a, a pretty lengthy list, and that became the outline for the book. Um, because, you know, the first military action of, of the Americans was here in New York, um, one in ten Doughboys was was from New York. They all departed for France from New York, and so that became um, the first half of the book. Then the second half of the book is a guide to monuments and memorials because New York has more than two hundred World War One memorials in the five boroughs. Everything from sculptures and statues to small memorials to um, really local landmarks, and so that became the outline for my book really for, for a way for anyone visiting to the city that they could just, in this one book, find, uh, find places that um, spoke to them that had a tie to the Great War. Um, so, you can, so you can go to a place like where James Montgomery Flag Studio was. So if you know, you know the I Want You poster with Uncle Sam, well, he drew that on 67th Street. So now you can go to the address of his house on West 67th Street. Or where did people go for military training? Where did people have um, their induction? Where do we do um, fundraising with people like Charlie Chaplin and Douglas Fairbanks? Um, so um, that became the, the, the list of 200 places in the city. Yeah, that sounds very interesting. And it definitely also sounds that for one man alone, that's more than enough to discover. And there's not, not even a need to you know, not go expand it to New Jersey or anything. That I mean, for you, I mean, New York is a huge city from what I understand. And it probably already was a pretty huge city uh, 100 years ago. So I guess that's why, that's why there's so much uh, going on there in World War I. I did, I did add a few, th a few locations in, um, on the other side of the Hudson River. Um, Camp Upton, which was the, the prime training ground for a lot of um, people that were drafted, um, people that um, signed up. That's in Long Island, about 75 miles um, east of the city. Um, and on the other side of the Hudson River, which is where Hoboken is um, and Weehawken, um, that's where the troop ships departed from. So that's New York Harbor. Um, but those docks are on... Um, are on the other side of the Hudson River from New York City. But the, the majority um, are in Manhattan, Brooklyn, uh, the Bronx, and Queens. Oh, that's very, certainly very interesting. Um, okay, I have, of course, I have a, 
popular image of New York from various decades um, through movies and other popular media. I have an idea about New York in the 1920s, in the 1930s. Uh, I think I have an idea about New York in the 1890s and everything, but I don't really have an image of New York in the 19-teens, basically. So how, can you maybe generally describe a bit about what was the city like uh, in that time and how did the war uh, affect it when, when the war broke out? Sure. So if it's June 1917, 1918, um, you would be, as a man, be wearing a straw hat. So we all wore straw hats. Um, you would start wearing them the beginning of June. As soon as the weather turned, you'd be wearing a straw hat. Um, we called them boaters. Uh, women would be wearing a dress down to their ankles, um, no pants. Um, and that's what you would look like walking down the street. Um, people were the sub, you know, rode the subways. Subways were not even 20 years old yet. Um, we still had streetcars. We still had horses on the street um, pulling carts. Um, but it was really industrial. Um, a lot more um, industry was happening in the city that we don't see so much anymore. Um, the garment business, you know, making and manufacturing clothing was a huge industry in New York at the time. Um, and shipping, you know, we had a lot of boats, a lot of steamships coming in and out of the harbor. Um, and that really made New York a very important port. Um, the number one port in the U.S. was New York City. Um, you know, pop culture. You know, movies were silent, um, no talking pictures yet. Uh, we had three baseball teams. You know, you had the Dodgers, the Giants, and the Yankees. All baseball games were played during the day. Um, and so, you know, that's what life in New York was like. Um, big immigrant culture. Um, immigrants were pouring into New York before World War One, coming into Ellis Island, also um, an important place in my book. Um, you know, New York was the number one uh destination for people to come to New York or come to the USA to immigrate through. We had an open door immigration policy. Um, and so really, um, New York is, you know, they called it the center of the world because so many people were, were passing through. And for the United States, it's the center of our financial industry. It's the center for, for banking and trade and finance. So it plays kind of an outside role in, uh, in the culture of, of, of the U.S. as well. Yeah, that's very, uh, a very relatable picture that you just painted. Um, speaking about the different immigrant groups, I think I have, to, uh, I have two questions. The first one would be going back to 1914. Um, you probably had a lot of people who were probably still citizens or at least had some you know, loyalty because they were recent immigrants uh, to their home countries. And of course you had migrant groups um, from basically opposing factions of World War One in the city. So how, how, how did that uh, play out on the streets of New York? Good question. Well, you know, Germany was the number one country that people immigrated to the United States from, by far. Uh, Germany, um, England, France, Scotland, Western Europe, um, and the whole east side of Manhattan, uh, Yorkville, um, then as now, was very German. Um, a lot of Jews on the Upper East Side, um, a lot of immigrants that came in. Um, we had German newspapers, German restaurants, uh, German churches, um, and very, very quickly uh, things changed. Um, we stopped, you know, speaking German in the street. Uh, the German language was uh, uh, kind of frowned upon and wasn't uh, taught in schools any longer. Uh, we truly tried to tamp down um, 
uh, our immigrant past. And it was, and it's very sad um, how that happened. Um, some people were looked at suspiciously. Um, we looked for enemy aliens everywhere. Um, took away a lot of people's civil rights at that time. Um, and then as now, it was kind of a, a, a dark time uh, for certain immigrant groups. Um, and we really wanted to um, take that hyphen out of your name. So, you know, no longer were you a German American, you were just an American. You know, you weren't an Irish American, you were just an American. And if you're an American, you know, you're going to support the Statue of Liberty, you're going to, you're going to, you're going to enlist, um, you're going to buy war bonds, which we called Liberty Bonds. And so it became a very patriotic era. Um, you know, what does that sound like today, too? Um, and um, so even though we'd had this open door policy for, for generations into the United States, we started to question that and think about that. Um, as a nation of immigrants, a nation of, of taking in refugees, um, we really, uh, in World War I, started to, re started to rethink that, um, which ultimately started playing out in the post-war era of putting immigration, immigration controls on and writing anti-immigration laws. Yeah, that uh, definitely rings a tone nowadays as well. Um, the other question I had was about Ellis Island specifically. I remember when we visited the American Mersagon Cemetery um, a few years ago, we talked to, to the guide there, to the local guide at the, at the cemetery, and he, we noticed that a lot of the names you know, sounded even German, French, which of course makes a lot of sense considering what you just said. Our guide specifically said that some people basically arrived by ship on Ellis Island and then were given the choice to enlist in the army, go back f to Europe, fight the, the war in Europe, and then they could come back and get citizenship. Did I understand that correctly? That's, um, that's kind of accurate. That's, that's more like the Civil War. Um, that happened more... Um, 1860, 1864, um, particularly to the Irish who are landing uh, in Manhattan. We didn't have Ellis Island at that time. In the United States, in the United States, um, uh, joining the joining the military was a little bit more formal. Um, I don't know. I really don't know of any stories of, of men arriving in New York and going right back over to to fight in Europe. It's more like they'd been over here a very short time, maybe a couple of, a couple of months or a couple of years, particularly with the Irish. Um, I know of a lot of stories of people that join um, the 69th Regiment, which is a New York National Guard Regiment, which later became um, the 165th Infantry of, of the Rainbow Division. And they did come over. They did um, come over, establish themselves, and go back to fight uh, for the American Army. Um, even my own, my own family, my wife's family, um, there's a story of three of the brothers in New York enlisting, fighting for America, and before they returned from France to New York, they stopped off in Ireland and went to Galway in their American Army uniforms to see their mother, and then they came back to New York. Um, so those stories of, of immigrants joining is a little bit more common. Um, not so much just, you know, you just got off a boat for two weeks and, or 10 days and then you join the army. That's, that, that doesn't seem like they would really work it that way. 
we weren't that hard up for um, enlistees. I mean, remember, we, we did sign up four million men. Um, so I don't think they would really be holding a piece of paper in front of your face in Ellis Island saying, join the army and become a citizen. Um, because before 1924, we had an open door um, policy for uh, in admitting immigrants. And it was only later um, that you would have a, a little bit more difficult path to citizenship. I mean, even if you're just there for a few months or two years or something like that, I mean, it's still a psychological, of course, very relevant um, experience, especially considering that the war you're maybe, I mean, even if you volunteer, the war you're fighting is back from where you came from, roughly speaking. I mean, Europe is not that big of a place, especially compared to the US or anything. Um, uh, yes. So... We have all these, um, we have the soldiers from New York, but of course World War I was also a pivotal moment for the US in terms of um, what you nowadays would call the military-industrial complex, meaning an expanding arms production. Um, of course, the you know, huge amount of soldiers you just said that were, you know, put in, into the armed forces meant that, you know, production for war material and everything, all that kind of thing really kept going. And you just said that New York was a very industrial town. So how was the war industry in, in New York? Did the ports, for example, work uh, overtime for uh, for putting uh, lo loading up convoys, that kind of thing? Yeah, well, not just um, New York City, but the whole East Coast, because just a couple of hours away in Wilmington, Delaware, that's where DuPont was manufacturing uh, powder, you know, for the Army and the Navy. So the, the powder industry, you know, making the gunpowder, making artillery shells, all that happened very close to New York. Or if it wasn't, they were being shipped through New York City as well, too. Um, so the, the, uh, the port here was very important to supplying arms and ammunition to the Allies. Um, that was happening here as well as um, shipping out animals. You know, don't forget, we had a lot of horses and mules. Those were also coming through here as well as in uh, Newport News, Virginia. Um, so even though, you know, maybe the uh, uniform manufacturing or the weapons manufacturing might be taking place um, outside of the, the five boroughs, all of that was being shipped through New York and Governor's Island and New York Harbor. Um, so um, this was a, an important place to distribute that war material. And the lessons we learned in Spanish-American War in 1898-1899, that also is going to um, play into effect with with how we were um, distributing the, the war material as well as the, the men that we were going to be using that as well. So we have a huge variety of Uh, New Yorkers joining up for the fight. Um, we have, for example, people from a little place called Harlem going over. And they made quite an impact um, in France, from what I understand. The Harlem Hellfighters? Yeah, exactly. Well, the, the old New York 15th, so, so New York State finally agreed to have a National Guard unit uh, made up of African Americans. Um, uh, starting in 1915, 1916, 
and that became a real source of pride in the black community. Um, they were very, very um, uh, proud of that group. And so those men were given almost no support from the state of New York. Um, they weren't given weapons to train with. They were given hand-me-down uniforms. Um, they didn't have an armory to train in, like um, unlike the 7th Regiment or, the, or um, some of the other New York regiments. They trained in Central Park, which was good because um, people could see them training and drilling and, and uh, doing uh, military exercises. And um, as you well know, that became a, a source for, for African-Americans all over um, the New York area, particularly in Manhattan and Brooklyn, um, upstate New York, where Henry Johnson is from, um, to come to New York um, because Harlem was the center of black culture in America. And so when they departed, it was a big, big deal. It was front page news here that we had our own black regiment. And at the time, the American army wasn't integrated. That didn't come about till Truman did it years later. So we had this segregated army, but we had a fully trained uh, combat regiment, which became the 369th, um, ready to go. And so they were used for recruiting in New York. They were used for um, for show. Um, and so um, they they really, really appealed to um, that segment of, of the United States that um, was black and was a minority. And so you had um, black recruiting posters, um, black songs, um, of course, black music, um, all that tied into... Um, to the old 15th, which became the Harlem Hellfighters. Cool. And so we have the Harlem Hellfighters. We have, you mentioned Dan Daly already, who he was also a New Yorker, right? Yeah, Dan, um, you know, born in Ireland, grew up in, in Brooklyn and Queens. Um, an amazing, you know, uh, hard charging, you know, very, <laughs> uh, real badass. Um, you know, uh, I love the story you guys did about him. Um, because it, you know, it really showed, um, you know, the Marine Corps was very small at the time. Um, the Marines had a, a had a really strong presence in New York because of um, the Brooklyn Navy Yard, the Navy Yard, which is um, still around. We just don't use it as a Navy post anymore. So the the Marines focused in New York um, would were on the ships were coming in and out of New York Harbor, um, and other immigrant groups that were in New York. You know, we had, um, you know, Italians, Irish. Um, all of those focused in Lower Manhattan, uh, the Lower East Side. Um, those became the 77th Division. Um, you know, we called you know the, the Statue of Liberty Division um, because it was kind of really the melting pot of um, of New York City. A lot of inductees, a lot of a lot of men that were drafted um, were put into that immigrant uh, immigrant regiment. Cool. And um, so you know, our, uh, after these. Um Events you have people you know with some fame who made it into the newspapers. I mean Henry Johnson, the Harlem Hellfighters, and everything. That was, uh, as I understood it, when they returned, you said they were already a, a source of pride before they left. But you know that must have been you know by magnitude higher when they came back, for example. Well, also don't forget, um, New York had 20 newspapers, and today we have three, 20 daily newspapers. And so all of those correspondents went to France. And so those correspondents were sending stories back to the New York newspapers. So 
people in New York, you know, and at those times the newspapers, you know, had millions and millions of readers. They had already been following the exploits of a lot of those men. And so the columnists were sending over um, stories about the American re regiments and what we were doing. So those names had already been um, some pushed out. You know, the most famous, of course, is the Lost Battalion. Before they even returned to New York, people were hearing these stories about the Lost Battalion, not in real time, you know, not like you would find out in Twitter today, but they were finding out about that um, pretty rapidly. So when they did come back in 1919, um, a lot of them were celebrities. And also, you know, don't forget about the women's stories because a lot of women went over as volunteers as well, too. And a lot of women had been sending stories about, um, about their exploits as nurses and volunteers and working with the YMCA and the Salvation Army. So we were really um, engaged and following along with what the men and the women were doing uh, in France. Cool. So it, it was not only for certain communities as, uh, let's say, a source of um, you know, identity building, but maybe even for the whole city then? Yeah, because we had, like, for example, the hospital units. You know, in New York, entire um, units would be raised of, of, of evacuation hospitals from New York. So we would send over volunteers of doctors, nurses, orderlies, all from one hospital. They would depart New York together. They would train from New York together and go over to France and were stationed together. And so that became um, a source of pride for that group, that, that micro community um, in the city of a hospital that was going over to volunteer or an ambulance company. You know, all of that was raised, all that money was raised um, locally um, by New Yorkers um, and other people from, the, from America as well too, but primarily from here to go over and take part in the war. Very interesting. So it's still on my bucket list that I actually, you know, want to come over to New York. Um, and yeah, I, I really want to. And I guess a lot of our listeners, you know, who might not have been yet, or even people who, you know, might not have been to New York and seen it through the World War, you know, putting on the World War One lens, or the World War One glasses. Um, what, what, what would you recommend if you know I have a bit of time in New York and I'm a World War One buff? What what kind of locations sh should I see? Well, skip the Empire State <laughs> Building. Okay, don't go. <laughs> you don't need to go to the Empire State Building or the World Trade Center. Um, no, seriously. But um, there's a lot to see, um, and you can do your own guide to places related to to the war. Just like you would do a battlefield tour of the Meuse-Argonne, there are certain key places to go. Um, I would start in, with Governor's Island. Governor's Island is a very small island, 700 yards off Manhattan, and that was an army post for 200 years. And Governor's Island is now a city park. And so the military left, and now it's a city park. We have 50 World War I memorials on the island, but that's the place where the American troops were focused. Um, that's where General Pershing departed for France from there. It's where um, we supplied the American Army from warehouses and a railroad on Governor's Island. And it's beautiful. I mean, there's restaurants out there. You can ride a bike out there, and you have a beautiful view of the harbor. That's Governor's Island. In Manhattan, there's key locations 
um, places where um, the artists worked, like James Montgomery Flagg, Howard Chandler Christie. Um, those are on the, the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Um, Central Park, there's a whole regimental grove devoted to great war memorials. But that's where place where, where groups like the 7th Regiment and the, the Harlem Hellfighters, they did military maneuvers in the park, um, you know, places like that. And the waterfront, you know, you, you can look at the waterfront and really get a sense of where those troop ships departed from. Um, that's right there. Um, and really, you go into a lot of buildings and see great war memorials, the New York Public Library, Macy's, um, businesses, all of those have great war memorial, um, great war memorials inside. And you know the the book really gives you a guide to places in in Brooklyn. Where was the Brooklyn Navy Yard? Um, where was uh, memorials in Prospect Park, um, the Bronx, Van Cortlandt Park? Um, they used to do maneuvers. That's New York City's biggest park. Uh, Queens, Queens is where Fort Totten was. That was our where the the first division, which was the first to get to France. Um, they departed from Fort Totten. That is still there. Staten Island is where Fox Hills Military Hospital was. That is now a housing development, but you get a sense of the, the location of Staten Island to, to Manhattan. Um, you know, that's just you know, just a little bit of an overview. Cool. Overview. And of course, we will put a link to the book in the podcast description. But I also read that you're actually a certified guide. So let's say... Um, I, I'm coming to New York and I have a bit of, you know, I know that a bit of advance. Would it actually be possible to go through these locations with you as a guide? Oh, I'd love to. I just, I just did that a couple of weeks ago. I had a, a family visiting from Australia and um, they didn't want to do the regular tourist things and they were, had been reading and studying about the Great War. So we did our own World War One tour for a few hours um, going to Central Park. You know, you can go to Central Park and go look at the ducks or you can go to Central Park and look for the great war memorials to the Lost Battalion and to, you know, women's service. Um, I love taking people around the city. Um, I'm a licensed guide, so I'm either going to the Statue of Liberty in Ellis Island or I'm doing literary tours and history tours. Um, but the great war tour, it's really fun for me um, because I'm meeting people that are have an interest in the great war And we get to talk about it and see some of those places um, that played a, played a role in World War I. Cool. Well, that sounds very interesting. And let's say I would be interested in that, how I would be able to get in touch with you. Oh, um, shoot me an email. Um, my website is uh, fitzpatrickauthor.com. And you can uh, contact me through the website. And just need a few days' notice, and we'll, we'll do a tour together. Flo, I would love to show you around because the best part of the tour is you do the tour, then you go out for beers afterwards. Ah, that's, that's that. of course. You had me at, you had me at beer. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, you know, we wanted to go to the U.S. from the Great War, but, you know, the thing is basically it's a, you know, would be a huge investment for us, which means we would probably need to put aside like two or three weeks for the whole trip, and we kind of try to move that around somehow, but it's just not possible. We can't, we can't stop production for three weeks. And, you know, the, the war is still going and we still need to put out our weekly episodes. So that's, uh, that's uh, a shame. But I'm sure at some point I will be in New York and then I will definitely let you know in advance. And I hope... Flo, I'm, 
I'm not giving up on you guys. I'm thinking about 2019. We'll we'll walk up Fifth Avenue, just where the parade went, and we'll retrace the steps of the Victory Parade. How that about sounds that? wonderful. That sounds like a very good idea. Um, so all the links, uh, relevant links, and all the contact info that you need, uh, dear listener out there in podcast land, um, to reach out to Kevin, uh, I will put in the. Um, podcast description uh, there's also going to be a link to um, the guidebook that he mentioned and uh, some of his other books and you should also follow me on Twitter you can follow us on Twitter and if you want to subscribe to the podcast and give us a nice rating on iTunes and is there anything else you want to say Kevin no I am just knocked out by the work the Great War Channel has been doing these last couple of years. It's so impressive to me, not just as a, uh, as a, a follower of the great war. Um, but as a, as a Marine, as an American, um, you guys are just doing, you know, the Lord's work. It's just really, really great. And it's really, um, impressive to me to watch the development of your series and your show as you guys did a, did a deep dive into the great war. So thank you very much. Well, uh, always glad to hear that. And, Let's stay in touch for that Victory Parade tour. That would be so fun. It'd be a great time. And I think a lot of fans would, would like to see you guys come to New York yeah, as well. Yeah, I think too. so too. All right, Kevin, uh, have a nice day and maybe see you around next year. Okay, thanks, Slow. Have a great time. <laughs>